Shall we meet? Yes. Now, darling, where? Somewhere where no one is listening. I know the place. Home service, 8.30 Tuesday night. <laughs> you mean the forbidden goon sector? Yes. Goonpod. This week we're talking about the January 1955 Goon Show episode 1985, which was based on the 1954 BBC television version of George Orwell's novel 1984. Um, I hope you're still with me. Uh, my guest this week is Sean Gaffney, and he comes from Cheshire, Cheshire, Connecticut, that is. Yep, another American. Can't keep them away, it seems. Uh, so I started off by uh, breaking the ice with Sean by asking him what he remembers about the actual year 1985. Uh, well, I was 12, and uh, that is approximately when I first discovered The Goon Show, actually, because uh, leaving aside The Muppet Show, because I think most Americans first discovered The Goons via Peter and Spike on The Muppet Show. Uh-huh, Yeah. In 1985 or so, I would have been um, after school doing what I frequently did as a young, young nerd, which <laughs> was uh, going to other towns' libraries to see if they had books that my town's library did not have. And I was in a local library ne next to my town, and I spotted a copy of the Goon Show scripts. Mm -hmm. um, and to show that I was young and had no idea what it was my first thought on looking at it was somebody's drawn all over this book <laughs> yeah so I can I can imagine why you might have thought that yeah but uh I I knew it was a radio show because it told me but I didn't really know anything about it besides that but I I loved the scripts and unfortunately it wasn't until I was in high school that I found goon shows on sale in our local our local bookstores okay so so what you're saying is you didn't get into it. I mean, I I knew about the show before I kind of discovered it, if you know what I mean, because my dad, well, because, you know, I was brought up in a country where the Goon Show was being played on the radio and um, and had been, you know, for many, many years. And most of my guests being uh, British, you know, they, they grew up, they discovered it through their parents very often, or just because it was, you know, because Sellers, Seacombe and Milligan were sort of omnipresent. Yeah, uh, whereas, uh, whereas I'd, you... I'd heard of Peter Sellers, mm. um, but Spike and, uh, and particularly Harry are, are not all that well known. And, and Benteen is basically unknown in, in <laughs> yeah. America. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I um, but the BBC in the 80, the late 80s was really hammering in a lot of their stuff into America. Mm. that's when uh, you would walk in and you'd find VHS of, you know, Black Adder and Red Dwarf and, and Python, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and they also started putting out goon shows on the audio cassettes. Yeah. And I think the first one I got, I thought I'd got volume one, but it turned out I'd misread it and I'd got volume 11. So that would have been uh, the string robberies. Oh, right. So it was the string robberies, your first goon show. The string robberies was the first goon show I heard. 
and um which you know it's not a great goon show but on the other hand my my first exposure to Eccles is the good king wenceslas <laughs> yes. which is a fantastic first meeting for Eccles. yeah i've got a list somewhere of jotted down about 10 goon shows that i considered would be good introductory goon shows for for newbies and i'm sure that i put the string robberies on that um, my default goon show that I always suggest as the you know somebody's first listen is the flea. The flea is excellent. Uh, I'd probably, I you know I usually suggest Lurgy Strikes Britain. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really got a lot of the things you see carried forward. It's the first time Gritpipe and Moriarty really team up to fleece Nettie. The other one I suggest is my favorite, which is the Sahara Desert statue, which I realize is probably nobody else's favorite, mm. but I love it to bits, everything about it. I'm trying to remember, because, you know, I used to listen to all of them, all of them on a loop pretty much for about three or four years when I was in my yeah, teens. You, you, go, you go through phases. I, I had a big uh, goon period in high school and college, because when I went to college is also where I found Spike's War Memoirs. Okay. But, you know, and then you get onto something else and then you come back to it and that sort of thing. And did you try to introduce any of your friends to the show? Any sort of family members? I did. Uh, well, my mom sort of tolerates the Goon Show, uh, but I would not say that she likes it. Um, several of my friends, it very much depends on the show. I, I actually, I introduced um, a couple of them with tapes of 1985 and uh, Shifting Sands. Mm which on reflection, Shifting Sands probably was a better introduction than 1985, despite uh, Jack Train, because of course, as we're about to uh, discuss, 1985 has a few entry level problems. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's possibly the most topical goon show stuffed with references to, particularly to sort of British, uh, sorry, BBC yeah. Light Entertainment. And this is why it was never released by transcription services. Correct. Yeah. The, the, the two, I, I think the, the four goon shows that weren't released by transcription because they were too topical to cut were the two 1985s, uh, Tiddlywinks, which was, of course, based very much around a goon yeah. news event, and The Evils of Bushy Spawn, which was also based around a very specific news event. Exactly. Yeah, which is great. I love that show um i don't but we've okay <laughs> it's just because i i don't know a.e matthews and i'm just like who is this cranky old man and why should i care <laughs> yeah well i was the same though i didn't i i had no idea when i first heard it because i it was one of the f first shows that i heard because i got um tape of it pretty early on and i didn't know about the the news event that it was based upon i didn't i had no idea about that i just like the fact that Yes, he was a cranky old man, but he was kind of wrong footing the rest of them. He was kind of, he was throwing them and you, you heard them off script. I like that element of it. Well, before I come on, I think the best place um, for you to be is backstage. Backstage, I yes. come on. And the little green stage will cue you and bring you on. Yeah, and I sit down. Yes, you just sit down and then you're on your own with us. You're on there. Yes, do what you like. Then yes. shall I start or will you? Well, we prompt you. Say now, Mr. I give a cue. You say, what say, about this lamp post this hole in front of? Who is the master? I say, who is the master? And you come on. Then you say, I am or anything you like. You, you'll you'll say, good heavens. Yes. I say, good heaven, it's the master, A.E. Matthews. 
Who is the master of the cottage? Yes. yes. Eh? Master. Say, who is the master of this cottage? I say, I, who is the master I, of this I cottage? Won't. He doesn't belong to me now. I don't think I want it here. Can I be quiet or do I have to shout like you're all shouting? You'll be as quiet yeah, as you like. Talk as soft as you just the same as you do on the film. I see. About this lamppost, sir, and you ignore it, say. Um, in 1989, I made my first trip to the UK with my dad, um, and that was to visit relatives in both in London and in Belfast. And I went to, I think it was the HMV on uh, Oxford Street, and I bought the tape that contained 1985 and Shifting Sands. And I remember that so clearly. Um, I went back to my cousin's flat in London and asked to use the hi-fi and I played it over and over and over again. But even then, even though I was sort of steeped in the goons by that point, there was so much in 1985 that I just didn't understand. By that point, I hadn't read 1984. I didn't have any in, if you know what I mean, in terms of the source material. Had you read Orwell? I had, or? I had read I had read 1984 um, as part of school. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember it was. I remember just finding it incredibly scary. Yeah. I had, of course, not seen the uh, the Peter Cushing uh, version. In fact, I I first watched uh, the first 15 minutes of it a few days ago mm -hmm. uh, in preparation for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think I've heard a lot of people say that uh, Spike's script for 1985 is particularly on target. You know, it doesn't stray off the way the Goon Show normally does because he had such a he was parodying such a specific thing that he had to stick to the scenes. Most of the scenes in 1985 have equivalents in 1984. Mm. Well, also, of course, it was if you think about it, 19, the, the BBC television drama 1984 was broadcast on the 12th of December 1954 live, and then it was restaged four days later. But then the, the, the Goons version, the Goons parody, was, what, the 4th of January 1955. So that was literally two, three weeks after it yeah. had been on television. And they were referencing it even earlier. Uh, two weeks earlier, Forog had uh, Greenslade in response to Seacom say, uh, yes, big brother. He's, he's, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Because yeah. the goon, uh, when 1984 came out, it was not only wildly popular, but also wildly controversial. Yes. There were a lot of people writing in talking about how it was simply too scary uh, to be broadcast on television. And also yeah. politically dynamite, I think. Yeah, but then I think people sort of calmed down a bit when they found out that the Queen and Prince Philip liked this. <laughs> the Sorry. goons were also in the news at the time because um, the week before and a, couple, a week before that too, they'd done some Churchill impressions, which they did a lot. Mm. Uh, but this particular one, which was another topical reference, which was edited out when the uh, shows were first put out and then put back in by Ted Kendall later, was about a telegram that Churchill said that he had in regards to um, uh, German weapons uh, post-World War II and um, then could not find. And basically it left Churchill with a lot of egg on his face. So the goons making fun of this was thought to be the last straw. And they basically asked the BBC, tell sellers, stop the Churchill impressions. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> which was brought up in the show after this case of the missing heir, when Sellers starts to do a Churchill impression and then coughs and turns into a, a sort of different voice, pay <laughs> prime minister, <laughs> and says, don't you read the papers? <laughs> So yeah, so so what was it about this particular episode? Because it, yeah, as I say, it's it's the most one of the most topical. It's so yeah. sort of incomprehensible to to well, people. Well, that 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 appeals to me. I've always, um, ever since I was a kid, been the sort who you you've heard people say, "Don't explain the joke." Well, I'm nothing like that. I I want the joke explained to me. Right. And even when I was a kid, uh, as one thing that everybody in America grew up with when I was a kid was uh, Warner Brother cartoons. And when you watch the Warner Brother cartoons and you see, you know, classic cartoons like Baseball Bugs ending with what is not only a reference to Rochester from the Jack Benny show, but an obscure reference with one of his catchphrases that nobody remembers anymore. And you're like, what is going on here? Why is that the final punchline to this fantastic cartoon? So you look into it. And of course, in the old days, you you couldn't get the answer. There was no internet. You couldn't exactly look this up in, you know, encyclopedias. You wouldn't even know where to begin. And it's the same with the Goon Show. I mean, you start off with um, mimeographed, um, you know, typed out things or, or, you know, what Roger Wilmot's companion. And then uh, maybe you get on the internet in the 90s and there's alt fan goons on Usenet. Uh, yeah. I was there. Yeah and the, the Goon Show Forum, and eventually with the advent of, you know, Wikipedia and uh, particularly the Goon Show Preservation Society's Encyclopedia Goonicus, we're now at a point where we can figure out many of these, you know, obscure, well, we mentioned CD plates uh, a few weeks earlier, which turned out to be a very specific reference that when if you listen to the show it didn't sound specific at all it just sounded like spike being silly um but in terms of the goon show i think the first time that i ever heard the goon show and really wanted to figure out what is that reference was um was um batter pudding hurler hmm. because uh batter pudding hurler is an ex also an excellent introduction to the goons and um one of the few shows that did not have a uh, a cut version released initially like uh, either a transcription services or, or pick of the goons version so you're listening along Minnie and henry are being silly and they ask uh who could possibly be carrying a gas stove across the moors at this time and Minnie says lady docker yeah and mm -hmm. i'm like i'm sorry who <laughs> as was i <laughs> Well, yeah, a lot of these that I say Americans don't get, you could actually argue it being 70 years on that a lot of Brits don't get it either. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, when I was listening to them for the first time in the eight, late 80s um, and I was in my teens, you know, I wasn't I, a lot of the references I didn't pick up on. But you gradually do. I think there's a there's a there's a lovely it's a, there's a lovely feeling of satisfaction that there should be a word for it, but there isn't a specific word for it. That feeling when you finally get a reference like yes. years later. <laughs> I felt like that when I got the telegram thing, because for years I had no idea what that was. And I'd asked other people on the Goon Show forum and they, they weren't quite sure. And it's only, you know, it's only recently that it's been connected. 
And uh, the other one that occurred to me was, that was an early I don't get this was from Napoleon's piano uh, towards the end, the Beaverbrook reference, mm -hmm. and which is another um, almost every goon show, almost all of them have some contemporary reference in them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what rock hall was for the longest time. Yeah. It and I mean, even even the uh, the whistling spy enigma turned out to be a lot more contemporary than I thought. You've done a show on that. That's right. Yeah. There's so, there's so many that, uh, you know, even though there are, you know, a lot of them are based on factual events and, and that they do have little topical references here and there peppered into it. It doesn't detract from the enjoyment of the show. In fact, in some ways, I like the obscure references because it let you know you, you've got to try a little bit harder, work a little bit harder. And I yeah, like that. Or, or when they throw in the little things like "thank you, Syrian," and yes. you have to look up Syrian Jacob and that sort of thing. 1985, though, of course, is sort of advanced studies in terms of contemporary references. In that, not only, of course, is it a whole show parody of 1984. But it's also riffing on what was happening in the news at the time, which was ITV. Um, ITV was getting set up and there were various people were making, um, you know, overtures to buying parts of the country to do ITV. And I don't think it had started at the time that this uh, goon show no. came out, no. but it was very much in the news. And there were rumors that, you know, all the radio people would leave um, for ITV because there would be money there yes now it started um either the week before or the week after napoleon's piano went out and i i only know that because i did an episode on napoleon's piano and it was um contemporaneous with that yeah you get a lot of uh you get a lot of references to that including what is it uh maurice winnick the uh the band leader who was part of the consortium that was uh trying to buy up the midlands uh version of itv which he did not actually do. It turned out they didn't have the money, so it went to um, someone else. You, you, you Americans, you, 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 you call the Maurice. It's Morris. <laughs> it's Morris. Ah. <laughs> in the Goon Show, he is Horace Minnick. Um, and in the the remade episode of 1985, he's what is he then? He's um, He's Hor Hor uh, uh, Maurice Winnickstein. Maurice Winnickstein, yeah. Yeah, which, um, and, and Sellers is very clearly doing a variation of his Lou voice yes. um, there, which I, I don't know if uh, Maurice Winnick was Jewish. I, I suspect probably not. I think it was just an excuse for Sellers to do the voice. Listen, listen, don't believe them. Listen, BBC workers, rise and overthrow your masters before it's too late. I will lead you against them. Strike now. Revolt. Yeah. Yeah. Morris Winnick gets mentioned in a one or two other goon shows. I know he's he's mentioned in I Was Monty's Treble. Another uh, fantastic goon show. Yeah, yeah. But so should we should we sort of talk about the beginning of the show? So there's um there's the introduction. Uh you've got Worker Seagoon, which is um, what's his number? He's um eight, eight four six, eight four six Winston. Seagoon, yeah, that's right. Um, and he's a worker in the great uh, news collecting center of the Big Brother Corporation, uh, aka the BBC. Now, George Orwell had worked for the BBC and back. was not not fond of it. Yeah. So I don't know whether Milligan knew that or it was just a nice, uh, you know, uh, it's honestly one of those things where I think people even people reading 1984 at the time when they see Big Brother might have made a connection. 
it's one of those things that looks obvious in hindsight. Yeah. And it was obviously a great opportunity for, well, we must say, I mean, um, it's written by Eric and, and uh, Spike, um, although it's hard to tell because I know they kind of alternated weeks, didn't they, in terms of script writing a lot of the time. So I'm not quite sure whether this one was sort of heavily Spike or heavily Eric. Do you have any sort yeah, of insight I'm not, into that? I'm not, I'm not sure either. Um, I, I, I seem to recall as Eric saying something like he tended to um, keep the structure of mm. the the plot, so to speak, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and Spike was was Spike. Yeah, but obviously it was a great it was a great idea um, to parody 1984 and to to center it around the BBC because it was a great opportunity to get lots of digs into uh, you know contemporary shows and, and personalities. Yes, and um, uh, which is of course most of 1985 revolves around contemporary BBC radio, either as punchlines or just as personalities. And I think it's impressive that uh, even today, the shape of the show is still funny, even if you don't get everything. It's still a very funny show. Well, there's, there's Miss Fnut, who's obviously Sellers doing his, I guess, Cynthia voice. It's not, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a variation on Cynthia that's not quite as as sexy, so to speak. Yes, yes. She's a slightly, slightly more prim. Um, so you've got you've got her, and she's she's a central character, and then she just disappears. Fnut will never walk the streets again. Why not? She's bought a scooter. <laughs> but the weird thing about this, and you know, I appreciate we're sort of darting ahead here, but in the first, in the in the the, the first version, so the the version. Uh, show 15 of series five you've got the antique shop and you have uh, worker Seagoon entering the antique shop and meeting a character that you at first think is Crun but it's not Crun it's 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 later Crun yes I I mentioned this on Twitter um uh, because even the the album cover of 1985 had it as uh, the antique shop as being owned by Crun but it's Crun, um, Sellers' voice has changed as the show went on. It's most notable with Blue Bottle and with Crun. Uh, and also Spike with Moriarty is the most obvious. And the Crun that uh, Sellers did for season uh, three, I'm guessing, we don't have any season three, season three to season, uh, series three to series five is slightly higher pitched. Yes. And starting in series six, it's, it's slightly lower pitched so that he, contrast more with mini yeah but even so i know what you're saying but the the antique shop owner who's the their take on yeah he doesn't, he doesn't have too many of crun's usual crunisms so to speak no no i, I think it's definitely meant to be because there is an antique shop owner in 1984 yeah. who peter cushing talks to who of course like everyone else in 1984 turns out to be working for big brother secretly and that scene was, in fact, um, one of the more memorable, from what I understand, uh, from 1984, uh, and had um, the antique shop owner was played by Leonard Sachs, who was in yes. many, many other things. Anything special I can get you? No, I just thought I'd look in as I was passing. Well, perhaps it's just as well, because I don't suppose I could have satisfied you. Between ourselves, the antique trade's finished. Oh, no demand, no stock, furniture, china, metalware. It's all been broken up or melted down. What's this? Paperweight. 
take it. Yeah, Len Leonard Sachs, most famous probably today, or even if he still remembered, as being the sort of like the MC on a show called um, The Good Old Days. Good evening, ladies and Harmoniously homogenized, I'm sorry. <laughs> Harold Harbinger of Highland Hilarities. Which, as you all know, means Scottish jokes. Uh, and I remember him as one of the Barusas from uh, Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, uh, so the antique shop owner, if we, we'll call him Crun for shorthand but i just wonder why why sellers opted to to modify the voice like he did uh it's just it's just a bit curious and obviously minnie's not in it either well minnie was uh there is a script of uh 1985 that that is part of the encyclopedia gunicus they have um most of the yeah original scripts and you can see some of the cut scenes and there were quite a few cut in 1985 including minnie in the canteen uh, serving food, or rather, saying that there is no food, uh, right. and and William shows up there too. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Blue Bottle turns up quite early on in this, doesn't he? As well. He does, and he doesn't get applause, which is, uh, I think, it might be one of the last times he doesn't get applause. Yeah. He does in the second. He does in the yes. second episode, but he has to sort of he has to ask for it, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> when we when we meet blue bottle it's one of the most borderline racy scenes ever in the goons i suppose in the sense that he's he's reading what's essentially a pornographic novel approved bbc pornography yes and of course it and of course it's mrs dale's diary because as, as i have been listening to more and more uh british comedy contemporary or modern I think Mrs. Dale's diary is the most made fun of BBC radio program ever. Oh, well, not the archers. The archers, yes, but the archers, I think there is an undertone of affection. Everyone loves the archers, even as they make fun of it. I don't think there are many people who love Mrs. Dale's diary. No, <laughs> no. Have you ever listened to any episodes? Well, I, it's a soap opera. I mean, I started to, but it's, it's kind of boring. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. It's, I, I know the, um, the theme, uh, both, which actually this is not the first time that the, uh, the theme from Mrs. Dale's diary has appeared in the goon show because one of the early series four episodes that actually survives, uh, Eccles is killed mm. and heaven, heaven is the, the harp from Mrs. Dale's diary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think I've heard one or two or bits of, it anyway in the past and my <clears throat> understanding of mrs dale's diary that it was extremely prosaic and um the, the sort of highlights were mrs dale going out to um scrub a front step or trim the hedge or go and get a pound of sausages from the butchers and that's it's that level of uh, it's right uh, which uh, is which is why the the parody that blue bottle is reading is you know so is so tame you know Yes, and Blue Bottle's lascivious leering and... Um... Oh, that's so wonderful and so <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Pauses to wipe drool off chin. It, it's rare that you could actually hear drool running down the chin. Yes. As you can there. Yeah, yeah. So 
getting back to the the, the the beginning of the show. So so we meet worker Seagoon and they have the uh, the daily. What do they call it? The hate hate half hour, which is which is straight from 1984. That was yeah. part of the the part I watched, and you you actually see them standing there. Hate hate hate. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Seagoon is met by, well, it's Grit Pipe Thin, but he is playing a character called Ronnie Waldman. Now tell me about Ronnie Waldman. Ronnie Waldman was not a character. Ronnie Waldman was a real person. Mm. Uh, Ronnie was a, um, he hosted Monday Night at Eight, which was a very popular uh, BBC radio show. And he also was part of a TV series called Kaleidoscope, which was hosted by McDonald Hobley. And also had uh, Leslie Welch, the memory man, who was on every single BBC show from 1951 to 1955, as far as I can tell, and Tony Hancock. Right. So when Waldman, when Gritpipe is like, what is the finest television program in the world? Kaleidoscope. You know, it's basically Seagoon sucking up. Yes. Gritpipe then as Ronnie Waldman is the, 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 the goons equivalent of O'Brien from 1984 right um who uh is posing as a member of in this case the ita but then turns out to betray seagoon which is of course all what grid pipe would have been doing anyway so oh, yeah. very little out of character there that's also where we get one of the first things that i really didn't get which was uh wilford pickles he was just he was all over light entertainment in the 50s have a go and uh what was the other um ask pickles was his tv uh which is why it. yeah since it's 1985 seagoon says son of pickles yes <laughs> it's interesting the uh it, we know that it was wildly popular it is literally the only goon show that popular demand had them redo it but the studio audience doesn't seem as into it no no they don't um the, the joke that goes over best with them um, is one of the few contemporary jokes that I got because it's it's very clear in how um, the Crun character tells it that um, what, what happened. What's this old object? That beautiful, isn't it? It's called a cricket bat. Oh, yes. Yes. Did they have test matches way back? Yes, that, that's right. As a matter of fact, this bat was used in the very last test by Len Hutton. You can see it's quite unmarked. <laughs> they, they love that. Uh, pop, probably because it had literally happened, I think, the week that that was recorded. Yeah, I, I remember when I first heard this, Not I didn't know who Len Hutton was, but I got the gag because of the context. I, exactly. I, worked, it, I worked it out, essentially. So they have the hate half hour, and that's, that's where we see um, Horace Minnick who is uh, leader of the ITA. Uh, it's around this point that Seagoon decides that he hates Big Brother and he meets uh, Miss Fnut for the first time, um, who's um, extremely forward in the sense that she, she, her first line to him is, I love you. <laughs> yes. Well, she does operate the pornograph machine in the Forbidden Records Department. So presumably she's already a little head up. I, I'm amazed that uh, that line made it in. There are a couple of lines, both the pornograph machine and the anti-sex league belt. Yeah. That I, I suspect only made it in because they might've been part of the original 1984. I, I guess that the, the, the goons defense would be, well, you know, you've had this sort of thing on TV. Then, so, we, then we get the most, possibly the joke that frustrated me the most. 
Oh, is this right? Yeah, this is the weird one. Um, I presume you're talking about the Ben Lion. Hello? Don't tell anybody, but I hate baby too. Who are you, Ben Lion? No, I was, but the script was altered. I am talking about the Ben Lion joke, which doesn't work in the first show. The audience barely laughs, so they try to do it the original way in the second show, and it still doesn't work. Yeah, it, it's, it's a play on the BB, BB Daniels. Right. Um, and I, as an American, I can tell you that I had no idea who Ben Lyon and B.B. Daniels were, even as a fan of old Hollywood. Uh, they pretty much went to Britain. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I well, don't know why Sellers chose to do a Groucho voice. No, but it clearly is meant to be a Groucho voice because Sigun says uh, Karl Marx, as in you yes. know, Groucho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just out of interest, I didn't I didn't check was. Did Ben Lyons and B.B. Daniels, did they come over to the UK because of the HUAC? I don't think so. I, I think it was just coming over for work rather than uh, for that. I don't, I'll have to double check. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. So we have Max Geldry. Then we have. Oh, no, no, don't, don't pass up on Max Geldry because I, 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 I feel a need <laughs> to jump in here after you have trodden all over my favorite musical act so many times before. Oh, I can't, uh, first of all, I didn't have the LPs in America. In fact, the, the EMI shows, which were released on LP, were some of the last I ever heard. Right. Because I didn't want to hear the shows without Max and Ray. And so I, I, I regard, uh, I, you know, the Goon Show is comedy, yes, but it's also a variety show. And I think that Max and Ray's interludes help offset the comedy, give you a chance to relax, you know, sort of reset the table, so to speak. And I also think that they're fantastic. I mean, uh, they also play a lot of contemporary songs. I mean, as we'll hear with this one, I mean, Shake, Rattle and Roll was mm. um, in mm. the charts, I think, when Ray uh, did it. Yep. And I, I love uh, the music. Uh, the first two uh, EMI shows I heard, I got um, the... Uh, the head of the U.S. Uh, Goon Show fan club, uh, Dick Baker, um, would dub um, cassettes of some of the EMI shows that had aired on on Radio Four or Radio Seven, something like that. Yeah, and uh, send them out for people. So um, the first two I heard were uh, China Story and uh, Six Charlies in Search of an Author, um, which became another one of my absolute favorites because. Yes. I wanted to hear those with the music because in particular China story, not only has Max and Ray, but also has Adolphus Springs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I have had people on who have uh, admitted to, as I did occasionally when I was um, a foolish youth, you know, admitted to skipping Ray and Ray and Max, but I've become, I've, I've warmed to them a lot more as I've got older and listened again, both of them are uh, integral to the show. I know you're all enjoying yourselves, but silence, please. Silence for the cabaret. I have pleasure in presenting those glamorous grandmothers, the three Beverly sisters. Correction, the Beverly twins. Miss Beverly will sing, everybody dance. Seagoon arrives at the Grosvenor Hotel and we... What's your awareness, if any, of the Beverly sisters? I mean, I assumed they were the same as the Andrews sisters, which actually turns out to be true. Yeah. Um, I was surprised they all got killed off, given their real, like, performing sisters. I was like, that was rather mean if the goon show. <laughs> I think they had a reputation for being um, uh, third-rate Andrews sisters. 
kind of. Yeah. Uh, they, they, well, I mean, uh, this was the 50s was, shall we say, not the best time for British music. Uh, I mean, when you when you hear Elvis and uh, think we need our own Elvis and come up with Tommy Steele. Yeah. Something is wrong. Eccles going in and out of doors is a recurring theme in the games. Yes. You've got the Eccles and Seagoon and Fnut scene, and then you've got the extended chat with, with Eccles and Blue Bottle, which is always lovely. Yes. Uh, I, 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 one of my favorite lines is where Blue Bottle says, I'm a man of mystery. Yes. Yeah, and he talks about seeing his sister's washing on the line. Well, they're both such innocents. Blue Bottle was sort of de-aging in Series 5. Because mm. if you listen to earlier shows like um, like Greatest Mountain in the World and some other extant Series 4 shows, he's still sort of splut muscle. You yeah. know, he's, he's still meant to be an adult. But uh, starting around Series 5, I think, is when Spike gets the image of him as a Boy Scout. Well, yeah, because in the Starlings, he's he's essentially playing an adult, isn't he? Yeah. But but yes, then you're absolutely right. Then from series five onwards, yes, he is de-aged. He's this he's this adolescent of indeterminate age. Um, I've had some people sort of think that he was about five, he's meant to be five years old, but he's a lot older than that. No, I'd I'd say he's twelve or thirteen, maybe. Because mm. mm. he's yeah. puberty is hitting him. Uh, what's that goon show? I forget which one where he's talking about growing hairs on his legs. Oh, yeah. Nature is preparing me for marriage. <laughs> yeah, it's around this time, isn't it? When so you've got Seagoon goes to the ITA or goes to uh, number 10 IU Certain Street and is met by Ronnie Waldman um, who uh, reveals that he is working for the ITA supposedly and there's that great line where they drink and then smash their glasses in the fireplace and <laughs> Seagun has to borrow a spare pair to find his way home. Yes which um, have you seen the London Entertains clip of 1951 goons? Yes. yes. They do something very similar. Yes. <laughs> Um, there, there's a there's a cut bit which probably very wisely cut, uh, which is a lot more nasty towards the ITA or ITV, uh, where Gritpipe says, in fact, anything that Joe Public laps up and rakes in the shekels is the property of ITA, and I'm yeah. like, yeah, that probably deserved to be cut. <laughs> yeah, yes, they just thought that um, the ITV was going to be crass and commercially driven, which of course it. It was to a degree. Which it was, but I, I don't think it was quite as bad as they thought. No. Now, uh, so Room 101 is is now, you know, it's it's a, it's such a common phrase now. It's it's become part of the yeah, and common I think, lexicon. Um, you have a you have a show where um is it Paul Merton? Yes, uh, yeah. So it was um it was a, it, it began as a radio show, I think, and then Nick Hancock took it onto TV, the TV version, and then Paul Merton took it over. And it was it was a great show. It was back in the 90s, and it was uh, it was essentially every week a celebrity would, would come on and consign to Room 101 eight or nine things that he or she absolutely hated. And uh, Which is essentially what Spike is doing here. It, absolutely. And and so, yes, yeah, so Seagoon turns out to have been betrayed by uh, Ronnie Waldman and is taken to the listening room. There, there was a torture line that was cut uh, that was in the original script where um, Seagun says, I won't talk. And Gritpipe says, can you scream? Yes, that'll do. 
which I think was probably the funniest gag that they cut. That would that was quite good, although somewhat dark. Yeah. Mm. Yes, and, and so so Secret's torture consists of uh, theme songs from popular BBC programs at the time. Yep, we've already mentioned Mrs. Dale's Diary, um, which comes up, and we mentioned uh, Ben Lyon, which of course the show was Life with the Lions, and then they had. Um, the script, the script said the archers uh, in place of life with the lions, and um, that would have gone over my head, too. I mainly know the archers these days due to people talking about it on Twitter, because I think it's still going. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's still very popular as far as I know. And I uh, remember uh, the first I'd heard of it, I must have been reading some Doctor Who uh, nonfiction book or something, and they talked about the death of uh, Grace Archer in 1950-something mm, mm. as being one of the iconic events of that decade yeah now that was 55 and i've got a feeling i need to check but i've got a feeling that the death of grace archer was in response to itv starting uh even though it was on the radio i've got a feeling that it was the bbc trying to pull out all the stops to uh overshadow itv overshadow itv yeah mm. well the, the archer's theme does get um played on a goon show trying to remember which one i think is it the spanish suitcase um i'm not i'm not precisely sure it's that dun, 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 yeah is that the one yeah yeah is, is it the one where they're all welsh is that the thing on the mountain i don't think so i think it's no. more well known because uh, uh honestly mid mid series eight is sort of the uh the nadir of the good yeah show, it is so to speak. It, it is yeah, Wilmot, I think, had it correct when he said that they should not have been doing this and the vintage goons at the same time. It just exhausted them. Yeah. Usually, vintage goons doesn't do it for me. For one thing, going a bit off topic, uh, there are some contemporary references that are some of my absolute favorites in series four that are cut for vintage goons, and I'm very bitter about that. I know uh, the missing prime minister uh, my favorite joke is when William is gagged with a, with a hand towel and Nettie says the yeah. initials WC must mean Winston Churchill. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they cut that for vintage goons for obvious reasons. Uh, I, even as an American kid, I knew what WC meant. Yeah. And uh, the other one is from the uh, greatest mountain in the world, which is the series four one is another one. Um, the, the scene with Crun and Nettie and Eccles and Ray and the mole is might be in my top five goon show scenes ever. Mm. And there's a wonderful bit where the mole comes with a note and Henry reads it out. And it's like, you know, to, to Britain with a, with love from our pals, the Egyptians. Yes. Mm. Which was cut from vintage goons. Um, again, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Mm. Ah, ah, here he is. The mole. Oh, yeah, look at him. He must be hungry. Yes. Here, boy, here's a nice worm for you. Mm, thanks. Any more? <laughs> you idiot, Eccles. <laughs> that was for the mole, you <laughs> I say, are you, are you sure he's a mole? Of course he's a mole. Look, here's the letter. With love to our dear British friends from your pals, the Egyptians. There. Hmm. If you don't believe me, read the label around its neck as proof. All right, here. It says L-I-O-N. Hmm. L-I-O-N? Mole? 
What does it say? Lion! <laughs> oh, you, you silly man, you. Ellington, do you think it's a lion? Yeah, vintage goons. It's absolutely great. I remember always being a bit down on it when I when I listened to it when I was a kid, uh, and I don't know why because they were strong scripts, more or less. They were. I I have issues sometimes with uh, with Moriarty. I have uh, some issue, same issues I have with series nine. I I get that Moriarty as sort of that cringing, you know, wreck is funny. Yeah. But I, I have I have two issues with it. First, I have trouble understanding Spike. Yeah. Uh, when he is when he is doing uh, later Moriarty, sometimes he's just completely unintelligible to me. And secondly, I, I think sometimes I, I particularly have this problem with Dishonored again. I, I have always said that I will die on the hill that I think Dishonored from series five is better than Dishonored again from series oh, nine. Right. Okay. I, I may be the only one who thinks that, but there's a great gag where Moriarty uh, steps out and, and walks into the light. And mm. it's one of those where I think it works better with the suave, sensible Moriarty than I think it does <laughs> with a Moriarty who would have walked into a lamppost anyway. Anyway, getting back to 1985, yeah, yeah. Uh, the two references that I only got like this year <laughs> uh, were the Huggets and also Issy Bon. Uh, Mm. Issy Bon is compared to Eccles, and I guess he was a Yiddish comedian. Yeah, I think so. And um, yeah, I've watched but, him on YouTube. He's nothing whatsoever like Eccles. So, <laughs> no, but 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 millions of people around the world have seen his face. You've seen his face. You've seen his face many, many, many times. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a clue. The Beatles. Oh, oh, is he on Sgt. Pepper? He's on Sgt. Pepper. Ah, he's one of the figures on the Sergeant Pepper album. Uh, I think Ringo chose him as really? as for inclusion. I'm not quite sure why. Well, that was the other thing is um, when I was in college and I first heard because um, I was I was late to music and then I sort of jumped into the deep end. Mm -hmm. So I was essentially listening to all the music at once. And so I was listening to one of the Beatles past master albums. And it had, you know, my name, look up the number. Yeah. And I'm listening to it. And all of a sudden I'm like, is that John talking like Blue Bottle or is that Peter Sellers? And <laughs> yeah. it, no, it was Lennon doing a Blue Bottle impression. But um, the next the next bit is perhaps the reason I wanted to come on to Gunpod. Okay. As it is a series of dense references that get a lot of big laughs and are quite funny. But I, I, they do revolve around one punchline, and that punchline is, it's funny because Ray Ellington is black. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, I, Spike did this punchline an awful lot throughout the Goon Show, which, I mean, credit to Spike, because I've watched a lot of Looney Tunes. He doesn't really go for the, you know, lazy or, race or stupid caricatures. If he's if he's trotting this out, it is for one reason alone. It's funny because this is somebody that you would think would be English or Scottish or Irish or obviously white, played by Ray Ellington. Yeah. And the joke here is that uh, he is playing Barbara Kelly, 
who was actually Canadian, uh, but she emigrated uh, to Britain with her husband, who was uh, Bernard Braden, who had a lot of shows in the 50s. Yeah. And Barbara Kelly was on uh, What's My Line, which is referenced here. Um, and it's the reference. Oh, by the way, sorry to, to cut in there. I'm pretty sure that Morris Winnick bought the format of What's My Line and bought it to British television. Oh. He did. He was involved with What's My Line in some capacity. Yeah, because The Goon Show, of course, later did their own parody of yes. uh, What's My Line, although that was a lot that started as the parody and then sort of went somewhere else Absolutely. as opposed to 1985. Yeah. Anyway, and um, there is a, a, you know, what's your line color television, which again, I think is another, it's funny because Ray Ellington is black Yeah. because the BBC didn't even have color television until 1967. So I think it's color. Yes. Um, and then he says black back on the old flying wire, which uh I guessed was Peter Pan, and it turned out I was correct. It turned out that um, about a month before this was recorded, Barbara Kelly was doing a panto of Peter Pan. Right. Then Ray leaves, and Sigun says, it must be terrible on bedtime with Braden, which was hosted by Barbara Kelly and Bernard Braden. You might want to put the clip in here. I will. You fiend. Poor Barbara Kelly. Oh, on the contrary, we think it's a great improvement. (laughs) It must be terrible at bedtime with Braden. Well, it gets dark early in Canada, you know. <laughs> Which is very clever and also racist. Yeah. So it's just a lot all in a row. And I, I, so much of it is just what to, you know, Americans or to even to modern British people who probably don't know who Bernard Braden or Barbara Kelly are. A couple of months ago, I, I got a copy of um, Jet Storm, which is a 1959 uh, film, which um, is like an ensemble piece. Is that the one with Seacom? Yes. Yes, yeah, I've, seen bun- clip, I've seen clips from that. A bunch of famous faces, and it's it's set on a it's set on a plane, and there's a there's a, a saboteur on the plane, played by I think it was Richard Attenborough. Memory serves. Uh, Seacom's in it, but he's he doesn't really. Uh, have anything to do with the plot as such he just sat next to i think it's um dame sybil thorndyke <laughs> uh and um but the the interesting thing about that is that two of the other passengers are bernard Braden and barbara kelly um and they as themselves or are they characters i think they're just characters but they just spend the whole flight the whole uh film playing chess and not really adding anything to it so i don't know why they were Included. Well, that that period in both Hollywood and Britain, uh, there were a lot of movies which are basically let's have as many famous people as possible in the yeah. film. Yeah, I'm thinking of it's a it's a mad, 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 mad world, that sort of thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you that you may not know, uh, based on one of the jokes coming up. How heavy was Harry Seacombe at the time The Goon Show was being done? <laughs> um, well, he certainly wasn't 20 stone. I don't know. But I don't think I don't think he was uh, uh, 420, which is um, what the, the previous one was. 20 stone is 280 pounds. Mm. And yeah. 30 stone, I think, is 420. Yeah, I know that he was I know that he lost five stone in the 80s because he said so in one of his biographies. Well, yeah, he had to. His doctor told him that he had to. Otherwise, he'd be dead. Yeah, uh, I think I think he piled on the weight in the 
70s and then he had to lose it i don't think i think his weight fluctuated in the 50s and 60s i think i think it did well part, the goon show basically regards him as this sort of short fat ball mm. uh, in fact it refers to, i think in snag in the green slide story refers to him as a little ball of fat um which i i mean obviously has done with with you know Seacombe's you know tolerance but um it it is rather interesting he made he made fun of his bait as much as spike did i think it was part of his character yeah i don't think i, I, I think there probably wasn't that much between him and peter sellers in terms of weight yeah <laughs> peter also fluctuated um and then we get th this one um th this one people might get the wrong answer uh Gridpipe decides to leave the torture to Moriarty and Blue Bottle and goes out to get a saxophone lesson from Jim Davidson. <laughs> yeah. And now it's not uh, the more modern Jim Davidson. It's it's the BBC dance band conductor, Jim Davidson. <laughs> it wasn't a uh, family entertainer, Jim Davidson, that we all know and love or, or not <laughs> these or not. days. Yes. Didn't he take over for Bruce Forsyth? Yeah, he did. And he was on the Generation Game. And then he was he hosted a, a snooker based game show called Big Break, which I watch because I like snooker. Um, you know, not because I like Jim Davidson. <laughs> uh, but, but Jim Davidson was born about 1953, I think. So he'd have been one year old. One yeah. year old. Um, anyway, then we get what is essentially a standard blue bottle uh, series five scene mm. where uh though there is some nice meta humor here where um Sigun says don't you remember me i'm your friend and blue puddle says yes you're the one who deads me every week yeah. Yeah. uh showing that uh well the lagoon show always played fast and loose with continuity sometimes they remembered each other sometimes they didn't mm. and uh this is i think clearly a bit where spike is winking at the camera to show that uh, blue bottle remembers all of his various um well I mean, the whole point of that shtick is you have deaded me again. So Blue Bottle remembers the various times he's been killed, but is quite happy to jump in again in the next show. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, that said, there's another gag that doesn't really work here. I mean, the audience laughs, but they don't laugh because of the gag. They laugh because Blue Bottle is blown up. Um, and that's that uh, Blue Bottle is running away to a missile, uh, nuclear missile testing range. Yeah. I don't think that's made clear in the original at all. No. And in in the revised version, they changed or the re-recorded version, they changed it to the Woomera uh, testing range. Yeah. Which also I don't think really worked either. <laughs> no, does he say in the first one, does he say Nevada desert? He doesn't. He says in the middle of the desert, but he's clearly flying to America and then going to the to desert. desert yeah. So mm -hmm. if if he's going anywhere, it's going to be there. Yeah. But it's it's not funny because he's blown up by a nuclear weapon. It's funny because he ran away from the explosion and it still blew him up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we get what is probably the final um, obscure reference and indeed the final gag, uh, where Horace Minnick announces that uh, he has taken over the BBC and they are debuting their uh, first of their brand new ITA programs. And it turns out to be raise a laugh. Yes. I, uh, I, I think you know this because you follow my Twitter feed, but I have recently spent 19 hours listening to Calling All Forces. That's right, yeah. Which mm. is a uh, BBC variety show that Ted Ray hosted uh, about four years before this goon show. Yeah. 
And one of the episodes, in fact, featured uh, Peter Sellers essentially doing a goon show with all the voices. Mm. Uh, he, he was doing a blood knock skit. Uh, I don't know if he wrote, uh, I, I don't know if it was written by Peter or by Spike or by Bob Monkhouse, um, who was the main writer. Uh, he and Dennis Goodwin were the main writers for Calling All Forces. I who, think what who, uh, Monkhouse gets a mention in the show as well, isn't he? Yes, he does, along with Charlie Chester, who also appeared on Calling All Forces. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Charlie Chester, who was a lousy comedian, by all accounts. Um, well, f- Calling All Forces was sort of filled with those. Um, but uh, there, he basically does a mini goon show skit where he's blood knock and he's also splut muscle. This is a um, this aired in early 1952. So it's a good opportunity to hear a very early Ernie's blood muscle mm. voice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in much better quality than the two extant goon shows we have that feature it. Yeah. And um, mostly what I was struck with by listening to all these shows, first of all, for, for all that the goon show and Spike. Uh, mock variety programs all the time as well as vaudeville you know with the i say i say get off the you know stage that sort of thing i think they have affection for it as well it's it's sort of uh it's like you know frank zappa making fun of doo-wop while also being very Mm. fond of it Mm. Mm. but i listening to ted ray he is very much the british jack benny I, th- I actually thought he was quite good in Calling All Forces, um, particularly compared to some of the uh, the comics they brought on. Ted Ray, obviously, Peter had worked with him on Razor Laugh. Right. Um, he was a huge mentor to Sellers, I think. And he taught, I think Sellers said that he pretty much taught him everything about timing. It, the it's theme for Razor Laugh is used as the um, the example of the brand new ITA show, which is to say everything old is new again. Mm. And of course... Seagoon regards it as continued torture. Yeah. Uh, and and as, as, as it plays out, you hear them, you hear the cast shouting, hate, hate, hate again. Yep. And then you get um, Crazy Rhythm, uh, which was, uh, after, well, after the Goon Gallop, which was their, um, Goon's Gallop was their theme song um, uh, for most of the first uh, half of the Goon show, like yeah. about mid-series six. And Crazy Rhythm, which I, uh, it was funny because I first heard it and I thought, I've heard this before, but I don't know where. And I assumed it was just some jazz compilation. And it turned out it was a Looney Tune. Uh, it was on one of the uh, mid-50s shorts, uh, Pizzicato Pussycat with Sylvester, oh. which was basically sort of an ersatz Tom and Jerry uh, that Warner Brothers was doing. But he's chasing the mouse and towards the end, the mouse and Sylvester get in the piano and start accidentally playing uh, Crazy Rhythm. I'm going to call the press. Hello? Is this... Oh, no. No, you don't. We're not going to go through that again. But Crazy Rhythm was very popular at the time. Uh, I mean, it was the Goon Show music numbers sort of alternated between contemporary stuff like Framed or Shake, Rattle and Roll. Yeah. And um, what were called the Evergreens, which was stuff from the late 20s, early 30s. But they did a lot of those whenever they're mentioning um, the Desert Song, that that's straight from that period. 
That, um, doesn't that, that comes up in um, the Sahara Desert statue? It absolutely does. The, mm. the long lost number eight touring company of the Desert Song. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and eventually, uh, as I said, th this did not come out on transcription services. So basically, um, the BBC would have uh, transcription services record their own copy of the show for overseas broadcasts, which was fortuitous because frequently the BBC would then wipe the tape yeah. and all you'd have left would be transcription services. Um, and so they would make some minor cuts. Usually they would cut crazy rhythm and occasionally they would cut contemporary references like say Lady Docker yeah. and um, that sort of thing. And they would, uh, they released about 108 of those. Mm. And then they uh, did a thing a few years later called Pick of the Goons, where they cut them even more so that they could fit in commercials. Yeah. And they uh, released that. And those were the ones, the Pick of the Goons ones were the ones that were first released on cassette back when um, the BBC first started, uh, not the EMI versions, but when the BBC started putting out the goon shows on a regular basis. I don't know whether that's the case in Britain. Certainly in America, the first the first Napoleon's uh, piano I heard did not have uh, the uh, it was missing scenes like Moriarty calling up to the air service and asking about the weather was cut and you know various things. And then when I got the CD of um, Goon Show Classics two later, I was surprised to find all this extra material, and that's when I first heard of this. Yeah, no, I think I think the BBC releases in the UK and and that I got were more or less the well they weren't the pick of the goons versions anyway i don't think okay it would not surprise me that they they put out something in america where they just said grab this off the shelf um yeah, yeah. but anyway and eventually um 1985 as we mentioned was once um basically there were a bunch of transcription services rejects uh we talked about the contemporary ones they also did not pick ones that they already had a different version of so you don't have hastings flyer yeah. or one of the china stories or the better man who never was mm, that's which right. surprised me because yeah. they're like well we have the season six version and i'm like oh well. <laughs> they also left out spawn and who is pingobo probably because they did not have harry or peter um they, those, i, I want to say they left out the lost year did they do that I don't think so. There were a few that did not get transcription services, but they did get Pick of the Goons. There were about eight that did not get one, but got the other. It was very weird. Huh. And I think Lost Year may have been one of those um, because um, then there were the not chosen because they were never broadcast. Uh, the six vintage goons that didn't air until like the 80s or 90s. Yeah, yeah. And then there were the ones that were like, this is too culturally insensitive for us to really edit away, uh, which is Fred Fu Manchu, The Raid of the Great International Christmas Pudding, which is filled with African caricatures, uh, The Red Fort, the, yeah. White Netty, the White Netty Trade, and The Battle of Spy and Cop. The Chinese Legs? No, Chinese Legs was uh -huh. there. Okay. And so is China Story. So frequently yeah. it didn't make, I mean, if China Story is there, but uh, Fred, the terrible revenge of Fred Fu Manchu isn't, you get the sense a lot of this is somebody noticed it at the time, but did not chase it down further. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, the, wasn't the Red Fort one of the EMI shows that went out on LP? Anyway? It was. It was one of those, um, it was on the very best of the goons, which was the manufactured stereo effect on it. 
Um, and the the other one missing is Operation Christmas Duff, uh, possibly because I think they thought that was a um, a special show. Transcription services. It's interesting in terms of the censorship, but uh, frequently, I, I think people think that it's more they cut out the dirty humor. And a lot of the times, if you look at the scripts, it's more they cut this out because they could make an edit that would save a couple of seconds. Right. Yeah. Um, the show was 1985 when it went out was so well received that they uh, did a remake, what, four or five weeks later? Yeah. As uh, the 20th um, in the series. This, uh, mm. The original was the 15th. The version that I've l listened to, which is on the Goon Show compendium, um, is a sort of like it's it's a, a mismatch of different recordings. Well, I think that the, the second version doesn't exist in the BBC archives. And I think had to, um, there is a very poor quality audience recording of it where you can tell because Max is playing a different number. Ray, Ray does shake, rattle, and roll again, but Max does a different number. And um, I think that uh, Ted probably, Ted Kendall, who does the, uh, the mm. restorations, I think that he may have had to put in bits from the original for the second when he just could not get it up to audio quality. Right. Possibly. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, but the, the, the second version is more or less um word for word the same although there's little differences yeah. obviously morris winnickstein the ben lyon joke is actually as as it was in the script and you get a rare appearance of peter eaton on mike yeah now what i wonder what the, i was wondering about why that would be because it was Greenslade originally i was wondering that myself i mean Greenslade is clearly there yeah the bbc would like to caution parents this program is unsuitable for the very young, the very old, the middle-aged, those just going off, those on the turn, young dogs, Alderman John Snag, and a certain big brother who's just turned it in. And they also, of course, had John Snag doing the uh, pre-recorded um, Big Brother lines. Yeah, which 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 would have made sense. Uh, I, I I think they probably wanted him first time round. Did he just? I guess he. He wasn't available then. Yes. And um, the script of 1985 also mentions the continuity announcer saying that Harry is appearing in Cinderella at the Hippodrome Theater in Coventry, <laughs> which is not on any version we have, though it does remind you that um, most of the time they were recording these and then they were immediately off all over the country to do, you know, appearances in the theater. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Or everyone but Spike was. Spike went back to his tiny little flat to write another gun show. Yes. So there we go. So um, it's, it's a fantastic show. Um, absolutely not one that you would play to a first time listener, but it's no, it's an amazing show to unpick. It really she, is. It's, it's one of my favorites for ah, I get that now. And now I can see why they laughed. Yes. The other thing I wanted to say is uh, a bunch of um, interesting tidbits from this. I also saw on um, the website, the, the Sigun Memoirs. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. which I, uh, which is also doing uh, sort of doing what I just did, which is going through the various uh, shows of series five and six and picking them apart for um, contemporary stuff. Yeah. And so I recommend uh, that people who want more information on that sort of thing, uh, check out that site and definitely also check out, um, become a member of the Goon Show um, Preservation Society. Yes. Uh, if you haven't already and uh, get the new Encyclopedia Gunicus, which is supposed to be monstrously huge uh this time around 
yes, which I will be doing uh, imminently. For it's, uh, yeah, I've said this many times. It's for a very modest subscription fee, you get you know, access to that. You get um, a quarterly newsletter yep. um, and lots of you know uh, access to lots of information. And they have events. So obviously, with COVID, there's there's been a, a restriction or a reduction in events, but th they will be happening again. And uh, yeah, if um, I, I, I can be found on Twitter, uh, not usually talking about The Goon Show, but I do occasionally talk about The Goon Show. I, my, my Twitter tends to be broad and of various topics, but um, uh, yeah. You're, and, you're in, are you in sort of like an uh, anime? Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a blog where I review Japanese uh, manga and light novels, which is sort of my, my secondary non-paying job. Yeah. And so that, uh, but I also, you know, I also talk about the Goon Show a lot. I talk about contemporary politics um, mm, mm. and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, you can find me there as uh, Toko-chan. And um, I think this has been a terrific show. I always love listening to it. Not sure whether I'll be able to listen to this one um, because it's <laughs> the difficulty of hearing yourself. I don't know how you do it. Thanks again to Sean. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye. It is not enough to obey, big brother. You now know what is needed. Who it is you must love. <laughs>